Why, it's such an honest song about questions about really everything. Why does God not answer prayer? Is there a God? Why does God allow children to suffer? Why did we have to go through that time of infertility? And we're beginning a series today called The Benefit of the Doubt. And we're going to talk about doubting. Doubts we have toward life, towards our own what used to be core convictions. Maybe you call yourself a follower of God, but you're not sure about Jesus because of doubts. Maybe you like some aspects of the Christian faith, but not necessarily the Bible, because you have some doubts. Maybe you even call yourself a follower of Jesus, but you're like, well, this ain't working. They said that if I did X, Y, and Z, that I'd get this result, and I'm not. Doubting is an important part of building your faith, building your faith muscles. Whether it's coming to conclusions, untangling yourself from bad conclusions, or growing yourself to the next level. So we're going to hear some stories today, and we're going to hear kind of a journey that we can all go on to find the benefits of doubt in our own life. Now, to do that, I'd like you to hear a story of a friend of mine. So can we give a warm horizon welcome to my friend Scott? Scott, come on down. Hey, Scott. Thanks for being here today. And I appreciate it. Thanks. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about your journey, your background, and as we talked at lunch, what was kind of a major doubt moment, faith crisis for you in your life? Sure. So... Um, I've been a uh, Christ follower for 40 years now. I uh, feel like you know, married uh, 32 years, uh, four boys, uh, oldest is a, is a girl. Um, and, you know, feel like things generally have gone pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that life was kind of happening the way it should be. Like I was doing my part and God was doing his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, until it didn't work that way. Sure. Which uh, happened about four or five years ago. My... My daughter uh, had met this guy, great guy. Um, they started dating. Um, we're doing all the right things. Got engaged, premarital counseling. Uh, ended up taking a class at our at our church uh, crossroads, and um, things were awesome. The night of the uh, the shower, he at one o'clock in the morning uh, showed up at our house and. Uh, told Abby that he was no longer in love with her, that mm. uh, he couldn't get married, and then he disappeared, like, wow. for, for days. Um, the biggest problem was I was in Montana with my four boys at a father-son retreat and uh, felt more helpless than I think I've ever felt in my life and really wondered how God could do this. Not only this thing, but also the timing of it uh, in a in a place where I couldn't fix it. So uh, at the lowest point, I had a heck of a time getting back uh, because of the flights. At my lowest point, um, I kind of cried out to God, like, how could you allow this to happen? How will my family be able to recover from this? How will my daughter ever be able to love again? Hmm. And um, in the middle of that, I kind of heard this quiet uh, little voice that I, I think was God. Uh, I hope was God, who said, um, number one, uh, this is not a coincidence that this happened when you were a thousand miles away. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you had been there, uh, you would have jumped in, you would have tried to fix it, you would do the things that you always do, and this relationship had to die. Mm -hmm. So trust me, um, there's good in this. Uh, Number two, uh, you will forgive this boy. Uh, you will lead your family through forgiveness. If you don't, it will be a cancer on your soul and the soul of your family. And three, 
I'm going to give you an opportunity to redeem your relationship with your daughter and to show her what unconditional love looks like. Mm. So fast forward a couple years after that, meets another guy. They get married. Five months ago, we had our Mm. first granddaughter, Ayla. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But in those dark moments, you know, you didn't know how the story was going to, it just feels like God's left the building. If there is a God, you know, and are my, is my daughter going to have faith again? Now, how about for you? I know sometimes it's even harder to watch bad things happen to people you love than even to yourself. It's like, yeah. you know, God, give it to me, but don't let my wife go through it. Don't let my ch- children go through it. Um, but you had another encounter where you felt like you came face to face with maybe your, your lack of self-awareness right. in, in some of your yeah. doubts. Tell us about that. So I'm a lawyer. Uh, my job is slightly stressful. I'm also in the process of raising four boys between the age of 16 and 22. That's even more stressful than the, <laughs> than the lawyer job. And uh, um, I'm kind of a go-getter, you know, like four or five hours of sleep, you know, a night, uh, high octane, a lot of caffeine, and was doing my normal kind of thing one morning uh, at breakfast early with a client and... About halfway through the breakfast, all of a sudden, I get a splitting headache behind my eyes. My tongue started swelling up, and my left arm went numb. And uh, I'm not a medical doctor, but I knew the signs of a stroke. And I totally freaked out, Uh, called my wife, said, I think I'm having a stroke. Uh, She rushed to the restaurant, took me to the hospital, get to the hospital, do all these tests, and... Basically, the symptoms almost stopped as soon as I walked into the ER, wow. did all the tests, came back uh, normal, uh, and I was having a, uh, basically a panic attack and was later diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, which um, I'm talking to my wife, she said, isn't it great that you're not having a stroke? And I said, that's pretty positive, but... Um, <laughs> it's pretty positive. That was pretty positive. <laughs> But the, the idea of, uh, you know, I'm having, uh, I'm so out of touch with what was happening in my inner life was really, really, um, really hit me hard because it's like, how can I do this job? How can I raise my kids? How can I do all the things that I do if I'm going to have this kind of problem? And uh, that was a dark, dark couple weeks. Um, and uh, over the last uh, couple months or, you know, last years, I've been wrestling through it have really come in uh, touch with my own humanity, my own mortality, and kind of the fact that I'm not nearly as together as I thought I was, which is kind of depressing. But yeah. we're working through it. Well, you know, I think it's, it's those times of doubt you really get to see yourself in the mirror, and it, they do feel like dark times, the dark night of your soul. Some uh, philosophers have referred to it as. And I think it's in those times of darkness you begin to ask yourself, or at least hope for, you know, do I have a guiding light? Is God the hope that can lead me out of this? Are the things that I profess to believe really true? And I just appreciate you sharing your journey, you know, from before and even this last year, of what it looks like to pursue that light, even when it's not clear and it's kind of muddled. Thank you. Can we thank Scott for his story today? Thanks. Well, isn't that what we all want? Even when you're going through times of darkness and there's no compass, there's no star, you want to have some kind of guiding light to help you through that when you face doubt. But isn't doubt the enemy of faith? I mean, isn't doubt a bad thing? I mean, don't we even say to ourselves, I used to believe such and such, and I gave up my faith because of doubt. 
Or maybe you're here today, you're saying, listen, I, I like some of the benefits you've talked about, about being a follower of Jesus, but I can't make the proverbial leap of faith because I doubt the Bible is true. I doubt how the Bible and dinosaurs and science all fit together. I, I doubt that the Bible certainly some good lessons, but God's word? Come on. Doubt is the obstacle. It's the enemy. It's keeping me from faith. Or maybe you trained your kids for 18 years on certain values and ethics and you sent them off to college and they're back after one semester and suddenly someone told them that everything you told them was totally wrong. And like doubt, that's the enemy of our family. That's the enemy of our convictions. Or maybe you had a season you said, no, I tried to trust. I tried it. I did what was said. I took the formula and I trusted God and he didn't show up. And he didn't show up for a long time. I gave him some time. And so, yes, I now doubt, but it's because I was believing and it didn't work. And it wasn't I just behaved my way away from God and he felt distance. I was there with him and he didn't show up the way he was supposed to. Of course, doubt's the enemy. I want to propose in this series that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but it's an important way that we examine our faith. To figure out if what we believe and say we believe really is what we believe. Doubt is a way we examine what's true, what works, what we've been told by parents or priests or pastors, but also what we've been told by professors in Richard Dawkins' books. Is it really true? Have we done our own homework? See, doubt is that process by which you figure out the difference between what you say you believe and what you really believe. Are you willing to act on those convictions? My father was a juggler. He could juggle only balls. He could juggle knives and pins and things like that. So he taught me to juggle when I was pretty young. And I learned how to juggle balls, but I never learned how to juggle knives. But uh, as I learned how to juggle, you can see me juggling right here with a couple different patterns, you know. And as I'm juggling, I could say, now, how many in this room believe Chad can juggle? Right, any hands? All right. If you don't, I just did it. This is called juggling. Uh, so this is me juggling right here. So that's belief. Now, I cannot juggle knives. But my dad could do this with knives. If I said to you today, hey, who would like to lay down on the floor while I juggle knives above you? You might say, well, I do believe that you're a juggler, but I don't trust you to juggle over me. And that's really the difference between what doubt does. It helps I go, I, I profess to believe certain things, but am I willing to put it into action? Can it be put into action? Is it really true? And so we're going to look today at two benefits of doubt. Like, what are the benefits that come with doubting? And number two, two applications on what you do when you or someone you love is going through that process. Now, first benefit is that when you doubt, when you struggle, when you question, you're going to make a journey. And that journey is you're going to go from, I was told something. My priest told me I believe this. Uh, It came out of my parents' mouth, and they told me. Bible does this, God's will is good, God loves you, God cares for you, God shows up. Whatever they told you, I was told certain things. But when you try and wrestle with it, when it doesn't seem to work, when it's not working out the way you were told, you go through a process of examination of those convictions. We had a woman in our church recently who said, I'm so proud of my daughter. She's in her 30s, going through a very difficult circumstance right now. And it's during this very difficult circumstance, we told her, God loves you. God can even bring good out of bad stuff. God is trustworthy. Don't give up on him. But as she's wrestling with challenges with her kids 
and challenges in her life and marriage, I'm seeing things we told her she can now tell. She's now saying, no, my faith isn't my parents. It's my faith. It's showing up in my life. I can tell you that God is good even when my circumstances aren't. And that's actually what doubt does. It moves from I was told what to believe to I can tell you now what I believe. I can tell you this showed up in my life. And that goes through the other direction too. I was told the Bible's not reliable. I read a Richard Dawkins book. I was told Christians are idiots. And then I went and examined it myself. And I came to conclusion. I can now tell you not what Richard Dawkins says. I can tell you not what my biology professor told me. I can tell you based on my homework and my examination of those claims where I come down on this. Doubt is an important developmental tool at every stage of your life to making your convictions your own. You go from I was told my family's faith to becomes my convictions and my faith. And to do that in this next five weeks, we're going to study a man named Jeremiah. He wrote two books of the Bible, a book called Jeremiah, and he wrote another book, which is a series of journal entries called the Book of Lamentations. And it is a whole series of his doubts and frustration and beating his, his, his fists on the chest of God. How could you do this? How dare you? And yet, Jeremiah was a man who was told a lot of things as a young boy. He grew up as a good Hebrew Jew. And he was told about Moses. He was told about God. He was told about the, the Passover and, and how God delivered his people. He knew of the stories of the judges and Samson. He knew about David and he knew about Solomon. He's after all of them. And so he'd been told his whole life, what does it mean to trust God? God's will is good. What incredible when God has a plan for your life, trust him with that plan, act on that plan. God shows up when you're weak, he's strong. He was told lots of things. But he's living during a very challenging time in his nation's history. So if you've ever seen Israel on a map, it sits right next to the Mediterranean Sea. It has a Sea of Galilee on the north side. It has a Jordan River that runs through it. And then it has the Dead Sea at the south side. It's during this time in history that his kingdom is divided. His whole nation is divided into the north and the south. The north is called Israel, the red part. The southern part is now called Judah. And it's during this time that God tells him to come and speak to his nation with a message. Wow, God's chosen. That's got to be good. He's going to be a message giver. That's got to be good. But the message isn't great. In fact, it's pretty bad. That this nation that has claimed that God's way is the best way, this nation that has claimed to, to follow God's leading, for now 50, almost 100 years, has done everything but what they profess. One of the most horrific practices they had is they had this big iron statue that they put up all over their countryside. They would put wood in from the back and, and have a fire going so this thing got blazing hot. And part of their worship services, these followers of Yahweh, followers of the God of the Bible, would put their small children, newborns, even up to two-year-olds, and they would set them in the hands of this burning statue and literally burn their children alive. Horrific. This is just one of the terrible practices that have been going on for 100 years. And though God had outlawed this thing, said that's not good, and I believe in the sanctity of life, etc., they were practicing some pretty horrible things. And so God says, I want Jeremiah, you to go and tell your nation that kind of time is up. It's discipline time, it's timeout time, it's you know, take your lumps time. And I'm going to send a nation called the nation of Babylon. Have you ever heard of the Babylonian uh, gardens or seen in Iraq, the Babylonian gates? There was a nation called Babylon. 
And the king was Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Nebuchadnezzar has become a world power at this point, And they are going to come in and they are going to conquer you. And I want you to tell the king, just imagine this. I want you to tell the king, tell the generals, that when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, surrender, don't fight. What are you talking about? How, how unpatriotic is that, right? How, how, how popular is that message going to be? Not. But, you know, God's wisdom was pretty genius because if you ever studied uh, the Babylonian Empire, they set up what were called client kings. And so when Babylon came in to take over a nation, they would say, hey, if you will pay us a huge portion of your taxes and tribute, and if you will not rebel, we will give you your freedom and you won't die. But if you rebel, we're going to make an example of you. And that's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar did to many, many nations. If you rebelled at all, he took meat hooks through your back and drug you across the countryside. But Jeremiah is being asked by God to do this message at this time in this place. Here's how the book of Jeremiah begins. These are the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Antoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that's the southern place, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And Judah is a southern place. Until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in his fifth month by Babylon. As I read that, you might think to yourself, that's why I don't read the Bible. That was a lot of big words and uh, didn't make any sense to me. And so let me immediately bring up some questions. I think that little paragraph brings up some questions that I think a lot of people have. Which is number one, is the Bible historical? People say it this way, you know, you've said, oh, I don't take the Bible literally. Okay, well, for some people that means I don't apply certain verses because I don't think they apply today. Some people think I don't think they ever should have been written. A good God never would have written those things. But the real question is, can I trust this? For many people, you've come to the Bible with an idea that this is Aesop's fables, good lessons to learn, but it's not a book of history. That's a doubt. Is the Bible a historic book we can trust just on a historical basis? Well, what we just read, as boring as it may have seemed, does that sound like somebody who is doing a fable? Or did that sound like a news report? Does that sound like somebody who's trying to tell you exactly the time and place in history this is occurring, like you could check it out? Like, here are the kings, here's what year we're at, here's what month we're at, here's the exact month that, that this empire called the Babylonians came in to carry us away? See, the Bible claims to be history, and rather than sort of getting generics, you know, in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the Bible gives very specific details so that you can check it out. So if you've never wrestled with whether or not the Bible is a historic book, it's a great chance for you to go from, I was told it's not, check it out. I was told it is, check it out. So you can move from, I was told, to I can tell. Go look in history. Was there a place called Babylon? There was. Was there a king named Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, Saddam Hussein was obsessed with him. He actually put his image right next to him on the coinage. Was there a time in history they took over Judah? They did. Did he have a pattern of if you rebelled against him, meat hooking you, but if you surrendered and gave tribute to him, he would let you live free? Yes, he did. My point is, if you've ever doubted the Bible's historical, there's ways to go through an examination of those claims to find evidence to whether or not it's true. But there's also a bigger question, right? It said the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It's one thing to say the Bible is a historic book. 
It's nothing to say that it's God's book, right? That's a different question. Because the Book of Mormon says it's God's book, and the Quran says it's God's book. The Veda says it's God's book. What's unique about the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, is because they don't claim to be just spiritual books. They claim to be historic books, which give you a lot more evidence to check it out. But the question is, I had a friend of mine, my friend Danny called me up. He said, hey, we, taught, we told my son that the Bible's trustworthy. It's from God. He's now an adult. And he's saying, wait a second, Dad. You also told me the Bible says that human beings are, are wayward and selfish, sinful and broken. And you told me that people wrote the Bible. Yeah? Well, Dad, how could the Bible be true and trustworthy and know that I got what God wanted if people wrote it? He's like, I didn't have an answer. He didn't have an answer because he had never done the work to figure out, how do I answer that? Can you answer that? And there's many, many different ways. So let's take philosophically. If God wanted to make sure his people he made got a message from him, he could have done it several ways, right? He could have written a book himself, thrown it on the ground. He could have appeared in the sky and said, let me tell you what I need you to know. That's one way he could have done it. He also could have dictated it to say, okay, I don't want the human beings to make any mistake. You're basically a typewriter. Write A, A, B, B, T, T, H. So the Book of Mormon, for example... The Book of Mormon claims to be dictated by Gabriel to Joseph Smith in order to eliminate the human component, God dictated word for word. Now, when you look at the Book of Mormon, it makes lots of claims about Jesus coming to America, talks about where cities are and rivers are, and as somebody who doesn't believe that the Book of Mormon is historical, the reason I don't believe it is because when I look for those rivers, those cities, those locations, you cannot find them the place that the Book of Mormon claims they are. Now, another dictating method comes from the the Quran, that the Quran was dictated to uh, Muhammad word for word, so he made sure he wrote down everything. So the human component didn't cause the trouble because God dictated to them. So that's another view. But the Bible takes a totally different approach. The Bible says God superintended or worked alongside of broken, sinful people. But he was the motivator. He wanted to make sure he got the message to his people accurately. So he made sure that while they were writing these particular books, these particular books, he sort of worked alongside them or umbrellaed them to make sure these particular books didn't have any mistakes in it. Now, you don't have to believe that. But those are three ways in which God could get the message to us. Then once you have the message, there's lots of things you've been told about the copying errors, the telephone game, the the fax game. But there are so much evidence to show that the details at which how the Bible was translated, we did not lose anything in translation. In fact, Josh McDowell, probably one of the scholars in this area, came and rolled out a scroll for us two years ago and went through that whole copying process to come against what you've been told, that the copying process was kind of haphazard. He's going to be with us in three weeks and talk about his journey from probably one of the most famous atheists who tried to disprove the Bible because he'd been told it didn't have any evidence before it, to writing books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict and more Evidence That Demands a Verdict because he now can tell you his journey. Yet he also is going to tell us that he had a son. And though he'd been through the journey, his son began to doubt. His dad was the expert on the Bible being reliable who wrote literally two books this thick on the evidence outside of the Bible to validate the Bible. And his son said, Dad, I don't know if I believe what you're telling me. And you know how he reacted with his son? Son, this is so great that you're doubting this. What? 
This is going to be so important for you to not just believe it because dad told you, but to go on your own journey so you cannot be told but can tell your process. And his son, Sean, has now become a pretty outspoken uh, speaker for Christianity, for the Bible, because he went through an examination of his own faith. That's part of the process. It's part of what you have to go through in that journey. But the third question, I think, is the biggest one that we struggle with. The doubt is, yeah, yeah, all intellectual stuff, Chad, I kind of tuned you out. I don't know what you're saying just then. You know, my real problem is, why did God let bad things, bad people like Babylonians, do bad things to me? It's very personal. We got carried away in the fifth month. And most of what, what Jeremiah writes in the book of Lamentations is personal. Why are you letting the children die? Why are you letting those bad things happen? Why are those fires, why are those arrows happening? I think one of the doubts we all have to wrestle with is why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> and why do good things happen to bad people? It's the sense that what God is allowing, what life is allowing to happen seems meaningless. And yet often you come across people who've gone through a process and they find meaning where you didn't think there could be any meaning. Like David Metter. I heard a friend of his tell a story about David Metter. David was 18 years old, kind of rudderless, self-centered as a typical 18-year-old was, didn't really care or listen to the friends and family in his life, and one night, making some bad decisions, runs his car into a tree. He wakes up in a hospital bed several days later. The doctor says, David, you're awake, you've been in a coma, you've had a car accident, but I got to tell you, you can't see anything because you severed your optic nerve and you're never going to see again. An 18-year-old makes one mistake and it's going to affect them the rest of their life. What kind of a God would let that happen? A good God would never let that kind of thing happen, right? Except this friend describes David as the happiest man. It's been 20 years now. The happiest person he's ever met. He, he walks into a room and just lights up the room. In fact, he's the number one blind golfer in the United States. Now, apparently that's not a long list, but he's still, he's the number one blind golfer in the United States. He, he, how's that work? You know, a guy comes up, puts the ball there, hands in the right club, and it's about 200 yards. Apparently he is really good. And here's what David would say. Well, first he'd joke and say he's the only man he knows who can walk into Home Depot and not see anything he wants. But David would also say that I had to be blind in order to see. It was actually that moment, as devastating as it was, that suddenly gave me direction in my life. The friends and family that I was really arrogant toward and narrow-minded toward and hurtful toward, I began to appreciate them when I needed them. I became the kind of person I needed to be and wanted to be, but I had to lose my sight. And sometimes what seems totally unredeemable, totally, there's no good can come out of that, God says, I want you to trust me. Go through the process of, of going through that. And I'll show you how I'm going to bring incredible things out of the circumstance. Which brings us to our second benefit. The second benefit of doubt is that we move from what we profess. I profess that God's will is the best way. And whatever God would want me, that makes sense. God made me. He'd know the best for me. I profess that, yeah, forgiveness. We should forgive because it becomes a cancer. Oh, forgive. We tell our kids to forgive. We tell other people to forgive. But then, like Scott told us, you have to forgive someone who broke your daughter's heart. I doubt forgiveness applies here. I doubt Jesus meant this person. 
I doubt this is particularly something I need to do. They need to forgive and ask for forgiveness, but I don't need to forgive them. See, it's when you go through the process, I've been professing to believe certain things, but now I've got to put it into action. I've got to lay down underneath the knives. That's when you move from something you profess to something you own. As Scott said, when I didn't just hear about forgiveness or theorize about forgiveness, I now owned I forgave someone who hurt my family so deeply and I modeled that for my family and I got to see and own that that cancer didn't take over myself and it didn't take over the people I cared about. See, his whole life, Jeremiah has been told certain things and professed that God's will is the best will. So God shows up, says, great, all those things you professed, time to apply it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God has known you since before you were born. He's professed that. What a great thing to hear. And before you were born, I sanctified you, which means I set you apart for a purpose. I mean, haven't you always wanted a purpose? God's saying, I got a purpose for your life. And I said, I don't know if I believe that or not, but I want that to be true. I want my life to have purpose. And therefore, it's time, Jeremiah, to tell you your purpose. I have ordained you or picked you or chose you to be a prophet to the nations. Your job descriptions come in. I want to use you to do great, powerful things, to speak to kings and to to speak to them about kings. And Jeremiah responds in verse 5 by saying, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I am a youth. No, 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 no. My nation's got a long history of killing prophets, rejecting prophets. I do not want this assignment. I said God's will is the best thing. I said I would trust God. It's now time to trust God. You got the wrong person. I know the story of Moses, who God appeared to him, and he says, I don't really speak real well. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. But I'm not Moses, and I'm not qualified, and I'm too young, and and, and, and I I stutter and don't speak real well. He's got a decision to make. He doesn't own what he says he professes. How deeply do you believe what you say you believe? Until you go through the process of doubt examining your faith, you're not going to know how deeply you believe what you say you believe, and you're not going to know if you really believe what you say you believe. Because if you don't put it into action... Those are things you profess, not things you own and believe. And the two benefits that don't feel always beneficial in the short term, but in the long term is, you're going to know what you believe and why. And two, when you say you believe something, it's the kind of thing you put into action. Those are real beliefs and convictions, not just sort of pontificated thoughts and cliches. So how's Jeremiah going to respond in this moment? How's he going to respond to this situation? Will you forgive when you have an enemy to forgive? Will you teach your kids, hey, God says, you know, uh, covenant and then sex. So, you know, try and save yourself from marriage and then you go through a divorce and then you're 40 or 50 and you're saying, well, I think maybe sex before marriage is fine for teenagers or 20-year-olds, but I think I can handle myself in 40 or 50, right? And suddenly you go, well, that, that wasn't a conviction you owned. It was just something you professed. Well, you shouldn't lie. Well, unless you're in this situation, then maybe you should. That process helps you discover and own what you really believe because of what you do. So two applications. Application number one. 
What if you gave God the benefit of the doubt? Often we give ourselves the benefit of doubt, but we don't give God the benefit of doubt. Right? There is no way, Jeremiah would say, that God could use me to be a, 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 a Bible person. And he wrote two books of the Bible. There's no way God could use my speaking abilities and he becomes one of the best orators in, in history. There's no way God could use this nation, Babylon, to bring anything good out of this. And yet after 70 years, it sets up a whole new stage of Ezra and Zerubbabel and many others building and restoring the temple. What if you gave God the benefit of the doubt and said, you know what, I can't see how it's going to work. I don't even believe it's going to work. But God, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt that you may see more than I see. You may know more than I know. Give yourself and God the gift of the benefit of the doubt. We give benefit of doubt all the time. My friend Steve Kissing has been on stage many times. He was an agnostic and recently moved more toward atheism. As we've had conversations on this stage about the problem of evil, right? His biggest concern has always been the problem of evil. How can you Christians believe in a good God when there's evil? I've turned it back to him and said, well, it seems like you're really concerned as I am too, that bad people are punished. Yeah. It seems like you're really concerned that good people are rewarded. Yeah, so am I. And the Bible says it will happen, just not yet. But you've moved from agnosticism to atheism. What's your answer to the problem of good people being rewarded and bad people being punished? Atheism's answer is not ever. You die like Hitler, you die like Mother Teresa. Same result. I said, have you come to grips with the idea that your biggest problem with Christianity, what you've embraced, has the worst possible answer to that question? He said, I have. And I respected it, honestly. I respect someone who will think through and say, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to my naturalism. I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to my atheism that it doesn't answer certain questions. As, as Richard Dawkins says, DNA neither knows nor cares and we dance to its music. You want to know why problems happen? You know why suffering's happening in your life? Because DNA doesn't care. Because the universe doesn't care. So if you can give the benefit of the doubt to the universe, to DNA, for its evil and suffering, why not try doing the same thing with God? Give God the benefit of the doubt. And that's exactly what happens here. God comes to Jeremiah after his, ah, oh, there's no way you can fix this. God said to me, do not say, I am a youth. How about giving me the benefit of the doubt? I worked with Moses. He said the same thing. I created the universe. How about giving me just a little cred here? For you shall go to all whom I send you. You're going to be successful in this mission. Whatever I command you, you speak it. You don't have to come up with the words. I'll tell you what to say. But do not be afraid of their faces. He said, behind what you're calling doubt is really fear. Isn't that true that many of our doubts are really fears? I'm scared I'm becoming those religious zealots. I'm scared if I get serious about God, I'm going to lose my business edge. I'm actually fearful more than I am doubtful. I'm fearful I'm going to be like one of those lobotomized Christians who become hypocrites and self-righteous. Giving yourself and God the benefit of the doubt is maybe there's something else going on that's different from your caricatures that you've seen of other religious people. He said, do not be afraid of their faces for I am with you to deliver you. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. 
See, I have set this day over you that you will root out and pull down and destroy and throw down to build and to plant. I'm going to use you to do some amazing things. But none of it happens unless you trust me enough and give me the benefit of the doubt to step into this. How about you? When your kids are struggling with doubt, do you give them the benefit of the doubt that it's an important part of the process? I had a 20-something come over the other day, and as she was talking, she said, you know, all this talk about, you know, abortion and different conversations on abortion. We grew up in a family that was, was against abortion, but now I'm hearing about sort of the after the child's born abortion. And I'm wondering, I believe in women's rights, where it all comes down. And I went to talk to my dad about it, and, and he said, get out of the house if you're going to ask those kind of questions. And so we just had a great conversation. I'm saying, well, those are good questions to ask. Let's wrestle with that. When does life begin? And what does it mean for people to have rights? And what does happen when your rights overshadow other people's rights? And it was just a great conversation to wrestle through these convictions. And I've got really strong convictions on this issue. But I want people to, to dialogue and come to their own conclusion and make sure that they've heard not a caricature of the other side, but an actual response from the other side. Well, if your kids are wrestling with their faith, is this a time to dialogue with them? Or is this a time to shut them down or to get all defensive? I guess that's not going to help. Give God the benefit of the doubt that he might work through a process, even if it's like, oh my goodness, they're still doubting. It's been a decade. Keep building a relationship. And secondly, this is probably the weirdest and most profound thing God says in this passage. Give a gift and hold on to this branch. Look what it says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me and said, Jeremiah, what do you see? I see the branch of an almond tree. And the Lord said, that's right, you've seen well. I'm ready to perform my word. And God hands him a branch of an almond tree. How in the world is that going to help my doubt? Like God's like, there's what you're looking for. Thanks. But when you begin to discover why God handed him this almond tree, it is incredibly profound. Because in Jerusalem, the thing about the almond tree is it was the first to flower. So the first time you saw the flowering occur, you would say, oh, spring's on its way. Change is coming. Right now there's evidence of flowers. And yet, it was the first to flower and the last to bring forth fruit. These almonds that were on there didn't come until the late, late, latest in the season. What God is saying here with this almond branch is right now, it's going to be 70 years you're going to be in Babylon. A whole generation much longer than you thought. It's going to feel hopeless. But after 70 years, I'm going to do an incredibly new thing. But it's going to be a long process. So I want you to know, there's going to be fruit. But it's going to take a while to get there. As your kids are doubting, God says there's going to be fruit. Just not on your timetable. As you're facing a health crisis, like, I can't have any hope. I feel very alone. God says right now, right now in the midst of your current situation, I want you to hold on to the flowers. The flowers are my promises. I am with you right now. I care about you right now. You are not alone right now. You can hold on to those flowers right now that God is a seasonal God who works in the different seasons in life. God has promises for you and promises for your family. And yet at the same time, you may not see the fruit of those promises for many, many months or years. So holding on to the branch is while you go through times of doubt... I'm going to forgive even though I don't see any fruit from it. 
but I believe that it could be a cancer in my life, so I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to love selflessly, even though I'm not getting much in return in my marriage, because I think the fruit will come, because God said it will come. I want you to hold on to the branch as you face doubt this week, this month, this year, knowing that God is with you right now, and the sign of his presence are the promises he wants to give you that you're not alone, that you're cared for, and that you're loved. But also the hope that he will bring forth fruit. He will bring good out of the bad you're going through or will go through. But part of doubt is examining and saying, all right, do I know those promises? Can I trust those promises? And will I give God the benefit of the doubt that he could bring fruit through this even though I can't imagine how anything good could come through this. See, we have this cycle in our life of going through doubt and going through rebellion and just pushing against God. And God, again, just keeps coming after us. says, guys, I want you to find me. I want you to find me in this. I want you to find me in this season. I want you to find me in this situation. In fact, there's a verse in the book of Acts that God says this. I long that you would grope for me and find me, even in times of darkness. Listen to this next song as if it's God singing and speaking to you. Well, let's pray together. And maybe you need to hold on to that branch this morning for something you're going through. So I just, maybe if you want to close your eyes, if that's helpful for you as you think about God, I want you to imagine God handing you an almond branch. And if you're up for it, whether you believe everything God says or not, just imagine yourself taking that almond branch. Maybe you want to pray this way. God, thank you that I'm not alone in this. I want some fruit out of this circumstance. I just don't know how any good fruit could come out of it. So help me see the promises you're handing me right now. That you love me. That you care about this. That you see what's going on. And help me to trust that you have a bigger plan. I have some doubts, God. But I want to give you the benefit of the doubt that you know something I don't. And through this, Father, we ask that you would meet each person here where they are in their current circumstance, in the muddled waters of doubt. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today. I'll give you two announcements as you're leaving today. The first one is that we have a whole series of things for the next two months that might be helpful for you. Because some of us, our doubts have nothing to do with anything I talked about, the Bible or God. It's like, how can I make marriage work? How do I make my family work? So we're going to have some family nights coming up. There's an insert in your program. We're going to have Josh McDowell is with us. He's going to be speaking about his journey from atheism to faith and being one of the top researchers in the country on that in three weeks. But then in the evening, he is a fantastic, spoken over two million teenagers and uh, families and, and talking to them about how to kind of do family life together. So he's actually going to do a seminar totally about just how to make family work. Information on that from Josh McDowell. He'll be here on Sunday nights from 6 to 7.30 p.m. on the dates behind me. And we also, we did a series two years ago called Get a Clue about avoiders and vacillators and things like that and different core patterns in marriage that really get us sort of screwed up and, and not experiencing the best kind of marriage. We're inviting the people who actually wrote the book, How We Love, to come and do a seminar here on Sunday morning and then come back and do an hour and a half marriage workshop. So if you want to see that, that's a, the Yurkovich will be doing that as well. 
And then also, Kathy Cook. Many of you love Kathy. She's kind of this uh, kooky uh, educator who spoke about the eight different smarts that our kids have. We're bringing her back to talk about how to educate not just our kids' heads, but their heart. And she's going to do a workshop for an hour and a half about how we train our kids' hearts to be successful. So if that's helpful for you, those are coming up. You can mark the dates for that. Then lastly, we've been talking for the last year. This is the week construction starts. Turner Construction is going to be here putting in uh, video rooms and video directing rooms and things like that over the the next month or so. Very, very exciting. We've got some new plans for some new spaces and some new tools as well. We're developing an app that's going to have the ability to search by title um, exactly what message topics are for sharing with your friends. So if you have not given to our future building campaign yet and you feel like, well, you haven't needed it, we really need it. Some additional costs have come in on finishing and some of the additional tools on the app. This is a great chance to make a one-time gift to the church and our future growth fund or even make a one-year pledge and tell us what that pledge is because it's going to be a very exciting next couple months as we see the things we've been talking about and planning come to fruition. So thanks for being here. We'll see you next week as we continue. Benefit of the doubt.